0: good morning it is uh great to be here this morning and uh, i am the the lead pastor of downtown church i believe chris davis um um came and preached maybe this summer or maybe in the spring but uh chris and i are the pastors downtown and and we are your church plant we um were called here the reason we came here is because um, um guys like frank stalworth and uh, eddie foster and um uh, somehow found me uh, minding my own business in Colorado and said, uh, we think you need to come to Memphis. And so um, our message this morning is gonna deal a lot with really what compelled me uh, to come back home, um, to be uh, in my city again. And uh, believe me, it was not easy. Um, I do love Colorado as well. <laughs> it's probably one of the most glorious uh, places on the, on the planet um, but I am happy to be here, and I'm impassioned about the mission of Downtown Church. And that's re- really where I want to turn our hearts and minds right now. Uh, let's look at Mark chapter 14. We're going to look at an interesting passage that really gets to the heart of the mission of Downtown Church and uh, what we want Memphis and the country to hear. Very familiar passage, Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 43, Mark 1443. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them, "The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him, and lead him away under guard." Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him. And fled. Now, a young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. Let's pray together. Our great God, we rejoice this morning uh, that you're a God of mercy. For we know our hearts, and you know them even better. Uh, You know our motives, you know our intentions. You know the things we have done and the things that we have left undone. And yet you, before all eternity, determined to make us your children through the sacrifice of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ himself, that we might this morning know that there is no condemnation for us who believe in Jesus the Christ. What salvation we have, O Father. What joy should fill our hearts. Forgiveness of sins imputed righteousness, acceptance and love of the Father, the delight of the Savior who dances over us with joy, the Holy Spirit who lives within us. Thank you so much. And may these things keep us from going throughout this day as just another day. Uh, But may we go throughout it as men who are uh, loved by God, not forgotten, but dearly loved, and those who will be taken home one day. Uh, God, we thank you for that hope, and may it shine through in the coming moments. Uh, Lord Jesus, make your fame wide in this place today. Uh, May we see your face. May we see your heart, and give us an ever-increasing passion to be like you. As we receive your love, O God, I pray that we would give it. May we hear that in the message today. For the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen. I don't know if any of you watched, uh, the Olympics, but I feel like I'm just coming out of a two week binge, uh, with DVR these days. I mean, 3,500 hours of coverage of sports. I mean, and I, I think I probably watched uh, 3,499 of them at some point throughout, uh, throughout those two weeks. I mean, I was watching men's and women's basketball, men's and women's volleyball, beach volleyball, indoor volleyball, swimming, tennis. I even found myself watching ping pong and badminton. You know, I'm sitting there in the living room. My wife comes in, and says, "Be quiet! I'm watching this point." She goes, "It's badminton." I said, "Yeah, yeah, but it's the Olympics, you know." And, uh, and we even had a party to kick off the Olympics, um, and we told everybody it was the opening ceremonies. And, and we told our friends that they, we weren't going to let them in the door unless they were dressed up. And uh, my wife is a huge tennis fan, and so we dressed up like. Uh, Venus and Serena Williams. We were the Williams sisters for the party. And uh, it was a great hit. And I think we were their lucky charm. Uh, They won the doubles gold. And uh, Serena won the gold individual uh, tennis. Um, uh, But had a great time. And then I almost let the closing ceremonies get away from us. Um, But we watched those as well. And I'm so glad that we did. Much better than the opening ceremonies. Uh, It was just a music review of British music. Unbelievable. Um, And and you didn't have to wait for every country to come in, filing in one by one, 250-something of them. But they all came in together, and the commentator said they did so to signify the the unity of the games. And that was really the theme of the night. Uh, You know, Michael Bolton sang his song, Freedom, and everybody was, you know, getting... Uh, getting uh, excited about thinking about, you know, the freedom, uh, just the whole concept of freedom. And then John Lennon, kind of at the height of the whole thing, John Lennon is flashed on the screen and he starts singing Imagine. And you have a children's choir down there. They're singing it. There's another children's hand motion team at the feet of the children's choir and, and they're doing hand motions to Imagine. And you hear John Lennon singing Imagine There Are No Countries. It isn't hard to do, nothing to kill or die for, no religion too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. You may say, I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. And as those words came across, I found something in me. As they're kind of the cameras are scanning the audience and, and you see just all the nations of the world together, I found myself hungering for world peace. And then I found myself feeling guilty that John Lennon was the one who led me into it. And I started thinking about the line, there's no religion. Imagine a world with no religion. And I felt guilty for, you know, connecting with that. But then I thought, no, Jesus hated religion. You know, Uh, (laughs) Jesus wants lovers. He doesn't want uh, little followers, little duty-filled people who have no love for him. Jesus hates religion. There's something that connected with me because that is the redemptive plan of God. What we saw in that stadium at the closing ceremonies and the opening ceremonies too was a picture, if you will, of Revelation 7-9. But we will not all be together in glory singing, imagine. <laughs> we will be singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain from all creation. Praise to the one who sits on the throne and to the Lamb of God. We will all be united, every tribe, every language, every nation, singing one chorus, and that is to the praise and the glory of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I thought, how sad that I had to see that in the Olympics to be... Um, you know, to be led to that in the closing ceremonies of the Olympics. Why am I not led to that in the church of Jesus Christ, even right here in Memphis? Because you see, there's something right about that in hungering for that because Jesus said, He said, This is how you are to pray. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus didn't just suggest. But he commanded us to pray that what is the life of heaven would be the life of this earth. Unbelievable. We are to be longing right here in Memphis, Tennessee, for Memphis to be like the kingdom of God. And at the very height where Jesus is moving everything is for there to be a community, a radical community in which there's no distinction, no no levels of superiority or hierarchy, but this radical community of um, men and women, boys and girls, who are loving each other regardless of race, Jew and Gentile race, regardless of class, slave and free, regardless of gender, male and female, that is the hope and the power of the gospel. And, dear friends, we need it. We desperately need it. Um, I was reading an article recently, and it was reporting on a study that a, a man by the name of Myron Orfield um, produced. And he is the director of the Institute of Metropolitan Opportunity at the University of Minnesota Law School. And what he found in this study is that, you know, we've all heard and we all know that the cities um, are diverse. If you've heard Tim Keller speak, I mean, that's, that's kind of his thing, and you've got to love the city. But what's happening, the effect of the city is moving out into the suburbs, and the fastest growing areas of diversity today are the suburbs. Uh, listen to, to some of his findings. He, he said, this country is really changing. The report shows that the number of diverse suburbs in the nation's 50 largest metro areas increased to 1,376 in 2010, a 37% jump since 2000. More than 30% of the people in these metros live in diverse suburbs, up from 26% in 2000. During the same period, the share of metro residents who live in predominantly white suburbs, and white being more than 80% white, slipped from 26% to 18%. And so the trend in our cities, in our big cities, is that even the suburbs are becoming diverse. But what is, what is happening, though, is that the church is not. And here's the problem. The church is to be a culture changer. The church is not to be lagging behind the culture. The church is to be leading and influencing and impacting the culture. We are the ones to be showing the world how to live. And yet, unfortunately, the world is not showing us how to live, but at least they're modeling in some sense, even in the suburbs, what the kingdom of God should look like. Why is this important? Here is our contention at downtown church. Uh, it was interesting when we were planning the church. And you know when you plan a church, it starts with, with a conviction and a vision. And one of the hardest things as a church planter is to try to convince those that don't know the vision to believe the vision. At the first few years, you are constantly articulating a vision that is yet to be. And one of the premises of our um, vision from the beginning was that that it is a biblical teaching and a theological conviction that the reason that God's redemptive plan is to unite all the peoples of the world into one radical community in heaven is because that is the best environment uh, for which to grow. Uh, just think about it. If you think about the issues of Memphis, uh, poverty and education and uh, crime, how are those things going to change? Well, as, as, I, you know, as I, I look at it in the Scriptures, they're only going to change in relationship. And here's what I mean by that. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I, I helped my daughter move into an apartment in Starkville, Mississippi, at Mississippi State. And I'm going to be paying a a rent that's due on the first of every month. Um, um, You know, tuition is due, I think, by by the deadlines, like October 1st or something like that. Um, I am doing our financial planning. I'm realizing the kind of sacrifices we're going to have to make for her to go into her sophomore year. And yet I'm not sitting her down constantly saying, honey, do you know how much this is costing me? You know, when we went down there, I didn't say, Honey, I just spent $80 in gas driving your furniture down here. I have spent. I could have been at home. You know, I didn't do that. Why? Because she's my daughter. See, I sacrifice, and I don't even know I'm sacrificing because I love her. I know that my sacrifice is going to bring her life. Now, what is the very center of the gospel life? Love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, love your neighbor as you love your children. Do you see the power of the gospel if we would but do that? Man, I want you to see that this is the hope of any city, especially Memphis. When the church begins to love her neighbor as herself, the city will change. We are the answer to Memphis, Tennessee, right here. And that's what I want us to see this morning. How can we get into that? How can, we, how can we think more clearly about that? I believe this passage tells us. And what we've got to understand is we've got to do a paradigm shift, and we need to understand the first thing that pops out to me in this passage is this whole idea of the foolishness of Jesus' upside-down kingdom, the absolute ridiculous foolishness of His kingdom. Joseph and Mandy Inger, many of you in this room know them. They were going here until we stole them away down to downtown church. They actually were living downtown. Now they live in Midtown. Joseph and Mandy have an interesting story. Joseph uh, spent six years in the Air Force. Uh, If anybody in here saw the movie The Hurt Locker, Amazing movie. It's all about, um, you know, the, the guys in the Air Force that diffuse bombs, you know, roadside bombs and other bombs. Well, that's what Joseph Inger did for six years in the Air Force. He diffused bombs. Uh, this guy is level-headed. He does not sweat much under pressure, I promise you. I mean, Joseph, uh, he can take pressure. Um, he then went to college and, and uh, majored in finance and minored in, in economics. He has been working um, a very successful job here in the city as, a, I think, a bond portfolio analyst and advisor uh, to banks, I believe. Um, and then Mandy just graduated in May of 2010 with her degree in pharmacy at, uh, from UT Pharmacy School. And she's been a pharmacist at Kroger for you know, a little over a year um, I mean, they're set. They just had their first child. I mean, now's the time they've put in all this work. They've invested all this time. Now they can buy the expensive car. They can upsize the house. They can live the life that that they've been working for. And yet, do you know what they're doing? <laughs> they're going to the God-forsaken country of India. You know, I mean, they could even be missionaries in, like, London. You know, they're going to India. One of the hottest places on the planet. One of the poorest living conditions on the planet. Their mission team that they're going to join just dissolve for the most part. The only ones that are left are the the leaders of the team. And Joseph and Mandy are going. No no seminary training, but they're going. He's going to start a bank and, and, and really use that as a platform to help um, small businesses and, and people in India, but also connect relationally that the gospel might rise to the top of the conversation. That's foolish, people. <laughs> to throw away all that education, to take a one-year-old son, and you, I'm assuming they're going to have more children, and yet they're going to a part of India that I've never even heard of, and there's 30-something million people in that part of India. Foolish. Our staff at uh, downtown church, we walked over to um, the National Civil Rights Museum last Tuesday and just spent about three hours together. If you, you really need to go. It was my first time to go. I'm really kind of embarrassed to say, uh, but it was my first time to go, and you really need about two hours because you do need to watch the documentaries, and then you need to read. You just walk through and read. and It's a ton of reading, uh, but extremely well done, extremely impactful. But in the documentary, Billy Cowles, Reverend Billy Cowles, um, uh, talks about his good friend, Dr. King. And, you know, he, he talks about the foolishness of Dr. King's life. He said, here's one of the most articulate, brilliant men of our day. He could have been an ambassador. He could have been a professor. He could have just enjoyed a large church. He could have, you know, the largest church uh, in in, um, the country. But where did you find him? You found him among the poor. You found him risking his life. You found Martin Luther King throwing it all away. He told his friends that he just had this sense that he wasn't going to make it to 40 he was 39 when he was assassinated. It's foolish. A wasted life. Time Magazine just came out with, they're calling it a book. It's its a magazine. You can get it at Kroger. I bought it here at Kroger in East Memphis uh, this week. But it's a, a special edition on uh, Mother Teresa. Uh, fascinating. I, I've been reading it this week. And it tells her story. I didn't know this that she felt called to um, to work among the poor as, as a young teenager. And at the age of 18, um, she left her home and went to Calcutta, India, and she never saw her mother nor her sisters again. Unbelievable! She never married. She never knew the joy of having children and her own family. I mean, how foolish! What a waste! Crazy or courageous? Is it foolish or is it faithful? You see, when, when I come to passages like this and when I think about what God calls us to in Memphis, I think it sounds so foolish. It's foolish to leave the number one city in the country to live and come back to one of the lowest, you know, the poorest city in the nation. the nation. <laughs> That's foolish. It makes no sense. It's crazy. It's, it's professional suicide, especially if, if this church fails. It is foolish for you. Let's just be honest. It really is. From a worldly standpoint, it is foolish for me to stand before you and say Christ is calling you to move your life in the direction of people that can do no good for you professionally who can do little good for you socially. It is foolish for you to invest the time that you could be providing for your families and even maybe risking your own safety for people that are just absolutely going to frustrate you, wear you out. I was watching the Olympics on a Saturday, I guess last, whatever it was, the last couple of weeks, I was so excited. I was, anyway, I was, it had been a busy week. I was so excited just to be on the couch and watching the Olympics. And I got a text from a good friend of mine in our church saying that he had just been evicted. This guy doesn't have a car, doesn't have a job, and I have a choice. <laughs> I'm going to act like I never got the text, or I didn't get it till like midnight, or I'm going to turn the TV off and I'm going to help my brother. I don't want to live like that. I love to fly fish. <laughs> I, I love to do things with my family. I love to just simply watch a movie. I don't like to be interrupted constantly. It's foolish. But if we look through the lens of this text this morning, we can see that it's anything but. What we see is that the kingdom of God makes absolutely no sense. It's not efficient, but it's highly effective. Jesus let a betrayer into his inner circle. Now, go with me here. We're so used to Jesus, Judas. You hear the word Judas, you're totally discounting. But do you understand in this passage... The most striking thing about this passage is when he kissed Jesus, we all know what he was doing, but nobody else did but the guards and Jesus. That's why he kissed him. That's why he didn't go up and say, there's the man, there's the man. He walks up and you see this exclamation point. He hugs him, he kisses him, Rabbi. And then he just looks surprised as the men come in. Nobody else knew that, what kind of man he was. But Jesus did. And he let him in on his session. He let him be one of his elders. He, John tells us he was an embezzler. Uh, if we look at um, in, in the Gospel of John, we see that um, when Mary brought a, a pint of perfume, very expensive perfume, and anointed Jesus, that it was Judas who, who spoke up. And listen, this is John's account. Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected, "'Why wasn't this perf- perfume sold and the money given to the poor?' It was worth a year's wages. Now, he did not say this because Judas cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Do you understand that Jesus allowed for an embezzler not only to be in the inner circle, but to handle the money? Do you know why he could do that? Because he was not driven By money. I want you to think about, maybe if that's all you hear from this sermon, (laughs) I want you just to think about that and wrestle with that over the next few days. Is there any wisdom in that? Is that not the most? foolish thing. I mean, Paul warns us about, you know, wolves and sheep's clothing and Jesus let a wolf in sheep's clothing in his inner circle to hear everything. No secrets were kept from Judas. Why in the world? I think it's because Jesus wanted the world to know and he wanted Judas to know that he was willing to be taken advantage of said, you can bring whatever scheme you have, but you're not going to defeat the kingdom of God. Are we willing to go into the culture and say, you can use us. You can bring whatever you want to, but we're not going to leave. We're going to keep loving you. You can betray us. You can use us. But we're going to keep loving you. You're not getting rid of us. It made no sense. Is there anything in your life that only makes sense if you're a follower of Jesus? Is your life moving towards someone and it makes absolutely no sense unless the God of the universe has moved toward you and you understand how radical that mission was? I think when we do, we're going to live the foolish life that Jesus lived. But then secondly, I think we need to see the power of Jesus' upside-down kingdom, not just the foolishness of it, but the power of it. We have been designated recently the, the, the poorest city in the country. And, you know, you, you look at the issues of crime and um, education and uh, just all the things that, that face poverty joblessness that, that face our city. It's, it's overwhelming. It really is. Um, and it's, it becomes more overwhelming when you get more in the midst of it because you really begin to see how overwhelming it is when you're in the middle of it. I want to contend, though, that we as a church have got to come together on our tactic. And please hear me, and this is dangerous, especially right here, because we value this. Um, culturally, we value what I'm about to speak against a little bit, okay? The hope of Memphis is not who wins at the polls. I'm not, please hear me. I'm not saying that's unimportant, okay? It's important, and we need to be engaged as Christians. But it is not. Most important. you hear me? It is important, but it's not most important. This city and this country is not going to change from the top down. No real change. No revolutions start from the top down. And that's what we need. We need a revolution. Revolutions occur from the inside out, from the bottom up. Eugene Peterson put it this way. He said the most effective strategy for change, for revolution, at least on the large scale that the kingdom of God involves, comes from a minority working from the margins. Seeking change by obtaining political power is, is not powerful enough to change the problems that we face. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is. And that's the power that you possess in this room. And that's the power that you must lean into. That's where your energies need to go. That's where your hopes need to go. They don't need to go ultimately to a political party. They need to go ultimately, and hear that, ultimately and primarily to the kingdom of God and to the principles that govern the kingdom of God. Let me lay this out for us. We have a man in our church who has lived a life of crime. He was a drug runner, a drug dealer. Um, he was busted because um, our, our police force uh, did a, a, an undercover sting. They, they got a, a policeman to go inside and to win the trust of our, our man in our church. And one night they were out running drugs, and all of a sudden the police descend on them and arrest them all. Um, And he finds out the guy that he had let in the circle was um, an undercover officer. Well, he um, uh, arrested, convicted, sent to prison. He got out. He was on parole. Uh, About a month ago, I think maybe uh, six weeks ago, he was arrested again for probation uh, violation. And uh, Judge (laughs) Craft, Elder Judge Craft, sent him to the big house again, and he did his job. He did a great job, and that's a whole other story that I would love to tell. It's very redemptive. Um, But anyway, Judge Craft sent him to the penal form. And unfortunately, if the story ends there, Memphis doesn't change. And unfortunately, many of us think that our hope is in the justice system and in officers and judges upholding the law. And dear friends, officers and judges need to uphold the law. They are, they are commanded to do that. That is their job. But that's not the hope of Memphis. Because now you have a man who is abandoned at the penal farm. And I can tell you that none of his, his drug friends are gonna go see him. But who is? Is this pastor going to go see him? Are the church members going to go see him? Are we going to go lay our lives down for him? Are we going to put our arm around him and say, We love you? I visited him two weeks ago and he was so stressed. And he, he just, I've, I've never seen him like this. And I looked at him and I said, I want you to hear me. This place does not define you. The blood of Jesus Christ defines you. You have been chosen before the foundation of the earth to be a son of God. Your sins have been washed away. There is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. I said, this does not define you. This place does not define you. And we talked about the future. And dear friends, there are an army of people who are writing letters. And when he gets out, there are people taking care of his girlfriend and his children. And when he gets out, there is hope for something to change. Because the church of Jesus Christ can and must do something that the justice system can't. It's not their job. They can teach a class, but, but what must change is his heart, not his abilities. He must have the desire to change life. And it's only going to come in the way that it's come to you and me if your life has been changed. You have had an experience with God Himself and you've come to the realization by the Spirit of God, mind you, that there's absolutely no reason on the planet in the universe for the God of the universe to care one iota about you. But He not only cared about you, but He sent His Son for you. And when that makes a, a, an impact on your life and you are converted to the Christian faith, then all of a sudden you can begin to look at other people in that same way. It is the power. Our power is not at the poles. Our power is, at, is on our knees in prayer. And humbling ourselves to go to the penal farm, humbling ourselves to embrace someone and mentor them and teach them how to not just read but live life, to be a dad to those that don't have dads. Sixty percent of the children born in this in this city are born to single moms. Who are gonna be the dads? Here we are. Dear friends, we can change Memphis. It is the power of God. This is what Jesus did. He moved toward all things broken. And unfortunately, we spend all of our resources moving away from all things broken, even looking to God to help us get away from all things broken, praying for protection. And we should pray for protection. Hear me. But Jesus gave his life. He died for this thing. (laughs) And he calls us to the same. Why? Because those who die in Christ don't really die. They kill us, but we live. So we shouldn't hold on to our life. We have a better wealth. We have a 401K. It's in glory and it ain't going nowhere. (laughs) Nobody can take it away from us. So we can give. And it is the power of God to change. And then thirdly and finally, we need to see the struggle of the upside-down kingdom of God. This ain't easy stuff, and we see it in our passage. Um, during our time last week, and it's so fresh on my mind, it's probably where these illustrations are coming from, but I was reminded, and I've done a lot of reading on Martin Luther King Jr.'s um, nonviolent approach. And, and I know Gandhi had a huge influence on it, uh, but the, the Scriptures did as well. Um, and whatever you think about, all that. Let's just put that on the shelf. But let's just go right to the whole idea of his nonviolent approach. It was interesting to me that when he did come to Memphis to to march with the the garbage workers who were way underpaid and ill-treated and so forth, that that he came to lead a nonviolent march. Um, And yet, there were some younger men who were listening and starting to read and hear about Malcolm X. And Malcolm X, you know, with with black power and um, more of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, and self-defense and so forth, uh, during that, what Dr. King and and Billy Kyles and others, you know, led as a nonviolent protest, uh, it turned very violent. Uh, the young men started breaking out windows and, and vandalizing, and then the police unleashed fury, and it just—it turned into one of the worst nightmares in, in our country's history. But King that night, um, one of his friends reported, uh, just lay on his bed and was absolutely depressed and, and just downtrodden. And he said, "I will come back, and we will have a nonviolent march." it can happen and it must happen in Memphis. Now, why was he so impassioned by this whole idea of nonviolence? It's because, it it wasn't because he was a sissy. (laughs) It it wasn't because he was weak. It was because he had determined in his mind that was the best way to win the fight. You see, with a nonviolent protest and with people holding signs that say, I am a man, if you can carry off a nonviolent protest, then the opposing side has to deal with the message. And that was King's whole philosophy. Let the culture deal with the message, not with our our violent actions and our... our Let the culture deal with the message. Let them be faced with the message. Wow. Do you understand that that's what Memphis needs to hear from the church? That we need to line up not primarily at Chick-fil-A. I I may really be hitting an idol here, and it's a good thing I'm a guest speaker, but um, we need to line up not primarily at Chick-fil-A, but at 201 Poplar. Uh, We need to show the city what we stand for so much more than what we stand against. We need to go, and I mean this, if you have never been to 201 Poplar, that is our, our city jail and our court uh, house, for lack of a better term go and walk into a courtroom, a, a criminal courtroom, and just listen. you can do it. Uh, you can't work in there. I found that out. Don't take, you, you can't be looking at your phone and, and working on your computer. You're just going to sit there and you're going to watch one person after another, and you're going to get overwhelmed, and you're going to hear the charges. And you're going to start feeling unsafe when you realize what kind of city you're living in. But you go take that in. And if the whole church would do that, I promise you something would change. Because we would see, we would start connecting the dots. We're not stupid. We're not ignorant. We'd start connecting the dots. It doesn't take a PhD. Well, if this guy goes to prison, who's taking care of his children? If this woman goes to prison, what happened? What? Think about the family, think about the neighborhoods, then what? And then you start realizing the gospel, well, Jesus came for me, so I must go for them. And if one or two people are doing it, that's great. But it's not going to change. What's going to change is when the army of God fights with love and self-sacrifice. And when that becomes our tactic, when we come together as a church in the city and we begin to say we will die that children in the city might live, that the next generation might live, instead of saying those poor people, they just need to get some contraceptives and they just need it, we need it. Instead of saying that, which is true, (laughs) But get a platform to educate somebody and say that in love. How does my daughter know, at least, not to have premarital sex? Because she's my daughter. Because we've talked about it. Because she has watched a, a, a father and a mother and she's listened. She has somebody in loving relationship. It's not been the law. It's been a loving relationship. And, dear friends, that will revolutionize our city. But here's the problem We're drawing our sword too much. And that's what we see in this passage. John tells us um, that it's Peter that draws the sword and cuts the ear of the high priest's servant off. And what does Jesus do? Good job, man. I guarantee the other disciples were saying, we're glad somebody was packing, you know, we're glad somebody was packing some heat, but Jesus wasn't. He heals the man's ear. He says, no, friends, this is the tactic, not the sword. The world said he who has the sword has the power. The church says he who dies and gives his life for another has the very power of God. So that's one tactic. The other tactic is this poor guy, and it's always puzzled me in verse 51. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment, I bet he wished he'd worn his underwear that day, was following Jesus, and when they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. So there are two options, friends from hearing this message this morning, either we're going to draw the sword and we're going to yell loudly or we're going to run naked. But there's a third way. And that's to realize that Jesus was willing to hang naked for you. That you might go be hung for somebody else. (laughs) That Jesus gave his life for you that now you might have the power to go give your life to somebody else. Dear friends, it's not easy, but it's what we're called to, and it's what we're saved by and what we're saved for. May we go do it. May we be the army of God today. May we live a foolish life for the kingdom of God and for the glory of Christ. Let's pray. Well, Jesus, thank you that you hung naked for us. Oh, Jesus, all praise and honor and glory go to your name. We rejoice in you. You are everything, we are nothing, and yet we're everything to you. May the reality of that message sink deep into our hearts and bring lasting change to us this day and forward. We thank you for your grace and mercy. We thank you that you haven't given up on us and we know you aren't. Thank you that you're going to get us home. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.